How many of you still are holding on to the theology proper? Wow, I'm impressed. Uh, Brother Jack, standing there, do you need one? Uh, if you don't have one tonight, uh, we're going to put this on our tab, your tab. So you've got to increase your tithe significantly to pay for the paper for an extra copy. All right, keep your hand up because you will need this. Oh, there's the, my bride. She didn't. All right, hold them up. We'll make, make sure you get one of these. You may, have not, you may not have been here last week as well. So on one side, you have theology proper, which is really the study of God. And then... We have uh, on the back uh, an example of an explanation, we might say, of the divine trinity so that we maintain uh, the correct understanding of one God yet distinctly in three persons. We talked about that last week. All right, they'll make some more copies. We'll, we'll get started. If you can kind of look over on someone's. Here's what C.S. Lewis had to say regarding the attributes of God. He said, God is no fonder of intellectual slackers than any other slackers. If you are thinking of becoming a Christian, I warn you, you are embarking on something which is going to take the whole of you. Brains and all. Did y'all catch that? Now you know I, I put a premium on you being able to think. Uh, little thinkers are big stinkers, right? We, we should be challenged to think uh, about God, to, to, to actually contemplate great theological truths. And I know for some of you, you would think, well, I, don't, I didn't get that, I didn't understand you're probably getting more than you think you are, number one. Number two, it's good for us to think about uh, the characteristics of our God and to remember with C.S. Lewis, I agree 100%, that when you are a Christian, it does take the whole of you, brains and all. God intends for you to be a thinker. The Bible says, always be ready to give a reason for the hope that lies within you, which is the word apologia, which means that we should be able and willing uh, to talk about the defense and give a defense of our faith. So I'm not going to uh, bore you to tears tonight. I think I'm going to present it in a way that really puts it in your court uh, as far as applying something called the attributes of God. Now let's begin by thinking. Uh, you got your chart. Does God exist? And we dealt with all of these arguments last week, and of course we Landed on the best argument for us is the biblical argument. Howbeit, the other uh, teleological, moral, cosmological, ontological arguments help us look at creation and the existence of God uh, from a different angle. And certainly all of them have valid points to help prove the existence of God. But the Bible uh, is enough. In the beginning, God. Right? The Bible is enough. But... We know through the time those things have been used. And then we began to talk about what is God like. And we have a triune God. One essence, three persons. And we talked a little about, uh, like Matthew 28, 19 through 20, in the baptismal motif of, in the, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, there are multiple texts that speak that God the Father is God, the Son of God is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. And so we talk about that in terms of deity, meaning Godness, who God is. So deity of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. So over to your right there, directly under what is God like, we deal with what's called attributes and or perfections. How many of you are familiar with the term attribute or attributes of God? Many of you are. And I'll try to help you see that and what that means here in an introduction. 
And then we're going to try to go down through the incommunicable uh, attributes and the communicable attributes and then end with talking a little bit about the names of God. I would probably, if I made that chart myself, this one was provided by a professor of mine, I would say titles of God, not names. Why? Because God only has one name, and it is Yahweh. It is the personal name of God. However, titles help us grasp who He is and all of His characteristics, and who He is to you. Uh, names are used throughout the Old Testament to express God coming and meeting a need, like Jehovah Rapha or uh, Jehovah Nisi. Uh, some of those names are used, and we'll talk about that at the, at the end, but attributes and or perfections. First, it has to do with the character of God. What, why is it significant to even think about attributes? Well, it's important because of the character of God. For most people, it's not just believing in God that is important, but believing in the right God. Right? The true God. That is having the right conception and understanding of God. Uh, so, as Spinoza once argued, it is one and the same God for all of us. If you know Yahweh God, right? He's the only God that exists. All other gods are false. Uh, a study of the attributes of God raises several questions or key issues. The relationship of God's attributes to His essence, what He truly is, how we should think about God's attributes, a suggested model for understanding God's attributes, and selected problems in thinking about the attributes of God. So when we analyze and think about the God of the Bible, it should result in at least the following. We should be able to think about a model of the attributes of God with definitions and key texts in the Bible that gives us knowledge about the God that we belong to. Second, we should have an ability to recognize perversions of the doctrine of God. Now here's where it really hits the road with church life, doesn't it? I mean, you just think about this for a moment. If you don't know what your God is like biblically, then you're going to slip into all kind of perversions of what truth actually is. So you need to have the ability to better communicate the truths about God in life and in ministry. Now you think about that. Three years ago you called a new pastor. For 30 years you had Brother Troy sitting back there serving this church. And, and we come in and we, we have studied and we've gone to seminary, Brother Richard. We've had class after class after class. We've been trained, trained, trained. But the fact of the matter is... When it comes down to it, we're students of the Bible, right? There's different ministry philosophies, there's different understandings, and I get all that. But the fact is, we have to be wed to the Bible, to what the Scriptures have to say. So I will not be easily moved at all off a position that I have come to believe that is in the Word that is taught about my God. You're not going to move me, okay? So you might as well forget it. Give that up, it's not going to happen. So these are things that should be in us, to the core of our being. And then thirdly, an integration of knowledge and skills personally so that we are motivated to worship God in daily living. So I'm of the conviction that when you don't have a perverted view of Him and you know truly who He is, as the Bible teaches us, He's seeking true worshipers that will worship in spirit and in truth. So when you truly know Him and you know what he is like, then you are drawn to worship him more. So shallow, uh, soft-pedaling, pablum-type preaching does not really give us a high view of our God. It doesn't. You, you need to be in the Word, breaking down the Word of God, uh, rightly dividing it, being a workman, uh, approved of God, in order uh, for us to have the high view. We don't need skyscraper preaching Jumping from story to story. We don't, we don't need just to fly over the mountain peaks and look down and think, well, that sounds all good and, and fine. You know, we've got the warm fuzzies. You've got to dig down a little bit into the Word so that we can figure out what our God is like. So that's the importance of it. Uh, Charles Ryrie once said, The important thing to study is the attribute itself to learn not only what it reveals about God, but also what implications 
that it has for the one's personal outlook on life. So this adds into our worldview. So that's a little bit of an introduction. Let me try to attempt to give you a working definition of an attribute, if I might. Ronald Nash, in the concept of God, says, A divine attribute is an essential property of God. A property is essential to some being if and only if the loss of that property entails that the being ceases to exist. Here's what you want, I want you to underscore. A divine attribute is a property which God could not lose and continue to be God. Think about that. I know that's kind of a twist in your brain a little bit. But a divine attribute is a property which God could not lose and continue to be God. If the being called God lost just one of these essential properties, he would no longer be God. So start thinking about that in terms of the attributes of God. The fact that if, if, if one of these things is not true of him, then he's not God. But I submit to you that all of them are. So a divine attribute then is a property that God could not lose and continue to be God. A divine attribute must be necessary to our idea of God. Another definition is attributes are God's properties, his excellencies, his perfections, his qualities, or his characteristics. It leaves, however, several crucial questions that we must go into, and that would be this. How could we then adequately divide out or ask the question how the characteristics of God line out? You know, that's a good question, right? How, how do you approach the multifaceted characteristics of our God? I mean... Uh, Romans 11 says his ways are inscrutable. It says that his ways are unsearchable. There's no way we can ever plumb the depths of who our God is. He's that magnificent. He's that much holy other than we are. So it's almost an impossibility in some ways. But in theology proper or the doctrine of God, what we seek to do is to... How do we communicate these? How, how can we actually talk about these together as a church family and or individuals and get a grasp of the character of God? Well, we break them down into two points. And they would be incommunicable. That means that these things are in the person of God and He can't communicate them to us. Or you don't share in these particular attributes. They belong to God Himself and not you. Does that make sense? They're incommunicable attributes. And then there is a part of what our God is like that is communicable to us. And we share in these attributes. Meaning, when God made man in His own image, He made them male and female. Because you bear the image of God... There are certain communicable attributes that we have because we're made in the image of God. Does that make sense? So, here's what we're going to do. Let's first talk about... No, let's do the incommunicable attributes first, if I can find them. Uh, yes. I've got them on the back of one of my pages somewhere in here. Okay, nope. Here we go. Let's talk first about... The incommunicable attributes of God. And I've given you, well, I haven't given you this. I wish I would have tonight, but I'm sorry. You're going to have to listen, take notes, follow with me. Okay? The first one in incommunicable, which is true of God alone. Y'all following with me on your chart? First is sovereignty. Okay? Sovereignty means absolute rule. So you're asking, what is our God like? Well, I mean, it's unquestionable in the Bible, right? Uh, God, uh, the Bible gives this without equivocation, that our God is absolutely in control, that He is sovereign. Uh, let me show you a verse. Uh, you can write these down and look it up later. If, uh, Psalm 115, verse 3. Psalm 115, verse 3. And Psalm 135, verse 6. I'm going to give you a New Testament reference, which is Ephesians 1, verse 13. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel 
of your, oh, I'm sorry, verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having, be, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Note, that speaks of the sovereignty of God. Job would tell us that the plans of God cannot be thwarted. That all the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. So that, that is the principle of absolute rule. That God controls all things. Listen to this again. He works all things. Now that's pretty exhaustive. All things according to the counsel of His will. And there are so many verses of Scripture. As a matter of fact, I have about five different charts up here that I could bring out more verses on the sovereignty of God. But that's enough for us to, to get the vibe of what the Bible has to say about who our God is. He is sovereign. Now, when you think about an attribute such as the sovereignty of God or He controls all things. And folks, the book we're studying now, Daniel, God is in control is the theme. As we go through it, you're going to be amazed at the sovereignty of God. Especially when you get to chapter 7 through, verses tw through chapter 12 of the fact that God is sovereign. So here's what we ought to always ask ourselves in response to an incommunicable attribute that is in God alone. Because you're not sovereign. Period. You're finite. You, you can't control anything. As a matter of fact, Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. So... What should our response be to the attribute of the sovereignty of God? Our response should be, we are assured that His purposes will be accomplished. Can you say amen? I mean, that particular incommunicable attribute should say something to us. Aren't you thankful that our God is sovereign? That He is in absolute rule. No matter what's going on in Iraq or Iran or or uh, Ukraine, or here in the U.S. You're going to see this in Daniel, chapter 2 and chapter 3. God, well, especially chapter 2, God is in control, even of the nations of this world. And so, he's, he's in control. We are assured that His purposes will be accomplished. Write these verses down. Isaiah 46. Isaiah 46, 8 through 10. I won't read... Every reference I have up here, I'll just give you a few. Isaiah 46, 8 through 10. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. And, the ancient, and from ancient times, things not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all. All my purpose. So when we hear something like divine sovereignty, we should be assured that his purposes will be accomplished. That should be our response to our God. Don't be fearful and afraid of the sovereignty of God. Your response should be one of assurance that our God is in control. Does that make sense? Anybody have any questions on the sovereignty of God? I mean, we've just gone through one, but if I don't finish all these, that's fine. Any questions on the sovereignty of God? Now, I could spend five hours talking to you about people's response to the omniscience or the knowledge of God. And is it limited? Does he truly know all things in the future? Is there something called process theology? Or is he limited at all in what he knows? Uh, we could talk about um, Bruce Ware. Help me, Lacey. What did he write against? Open theism. And that means that God actually accumulates knowledge like we do. Well, folks, there's a good Hebrew word for that, right? It's called baloney, right? Now, either God is completely sovereign or He's not. And so, I know that that's a huge concept to think of a being like our God that knows all things. He knows the beginning, he knows the end from the beginning and vice versa. He knows all things. He knows what could have happened. He has middle knowledge, future knowledge. He has knowledge of everything that could happen in every single situation. That's amazing, isn't it? 
But he's omnipotent. That's the God that we serve. Any questions? So all of you are good with the sovereignty of God. All right. That's good. How about the next one, which would be infinity? That simply means without limits. The characteristic of our God, without limits. Just brush over to the kings. And in 1 Kings 8, 27... No, not turning. Or you are turning. Or you're writing it down. <clears throat> You've learned me, right? Okay. 1 Kings 8, 27. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. Boy, that's breathtaking, isn't it? That God can absolutely not be contained. How much less this house that I have built. And again, that's a reminder, even when the first temple was built... Uh, and, the, and the book of Hebrews goes back and begins to reference Old Testament terminology uh, in Hebrews and in Acts. Even in Stephen's sermon, remember that? When he reminds uh, the Israelites that God cannot be contained. He does not dwell in, in temples made by hands. Nothing can actually contain him. Solomon said that in his dedicatory prayer in First Chronicles. I know we've got a building right here, paraphrase, but this building cannot contain you. And so we're reminded of infinity, that God is absolutely without limits. Romans eleven thirty three is an outstanding New Testament reference. Which comes at one of the most exhaustive teaching on the sovereignty of God anywhere in the Bible, which is Romans 9, 10, and 11. If you just really want to have a a blessed day, uh, right? And just use your mind. Just wake up in the morning and say, hey, my devotional reading is going to be Romans 9, 10, and 11. <clears throat> You're not getting this, right? Okay, Romans eleven thirty three. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable are His ways. Just a reminder of the infinity of God. Now, what should our response be? That it cannot be contained. We are assured that God can do anything and that our God can meet any need that we have. He, he cannot be contained. He has no limits to His power. And that should, be a, that should be our response to Him. A few verses about that would be Psalm 147, 5 through 6. Psalm 147, 5 through 6, and Romans eleven thirty three through 36 that I've just read. That was Paul's response. I mean, when he got to the end of chapter 11, it's like, how unsearchable are your ways? He's just blown away at our God. Okay? Natalie and I were listening <clears throat> to, was it Paul Tripp the other night, as we were riding, uh, Back home, we were listening to sermons, and that's the thing that he brings out in the book of Job. We think that the number one question in the book of Job is, why do the righteous suffer? Well, that's a question, but the other issue is, why would God forgive anybody to begin with? That's the biggest issue, because Job turns around and says, how can a man be made right with God? If we went to court 10,000 times, I couldn't even answer one word to this God. And Job began to understand more in those 40-something chapters when you have prologue, dialogue, and epilogue at the end. Job gets to the end and he's just like, I can't, con I can't contend with this God. He's too awesome. How, how in the world could he even forgive sinners at all? That's the magnificent thing about our God, that he would forgive us through the Son of God, period. So it just makes us think uh, of the infinity of God. All right. Uh, next is aseity. Some may pronounce it aseity, but aseity is the next one that is in the list. And that basically means that God is self existent. So it is the self existence of God. Uh, let's go to the Apocalypse. And that is Rome, that's Revelation chapter 1. Verse 8, the Bible says, I'm going to pick up some speed. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord, who is and who was 
and who is to come, the Almighty. Boy, that's something to unpack, isn't it? Maybe we'll unpack the apocalypse one day, but just to hear those words in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, you know what the Lord said to Moses. That's what that's about. So the self-existence of God, he doesn't need anything. He was totally, absolutely self-existent for all eternity, dwelling as God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. He didn't create you and me because he needed man. He needs absolutely nothing. He's the self-existent, eternal God who needed absolutely nothing, and he's sufficient within himself. That's amazing. We need something all the time, don't we? I mean, we're constantly in need of something. Not so for him. A seity. What should be our response? The realization of our utter dependence on God, who is the cause of our existence and the reason we continue to exist. You see how these attributes move your heart to the affections of to really praise him for who he is? If we just stopped there with sovereignty, infinity, and aseity, man, that's enough just to grip your heart, isn't it? God, this is why I need to depend upon you. Because I wouldn't even be alive if it were not for you. And I wouldn't continue to be alive if it were not for you. Right? Uh, next, the next one on your list is immutability. What is immutability? Well, it basically means that God is unchangeable. Do we know anything about not changing? We vacillate like the wind, don't we? We're so unpredictable and fickle to even think about a being that does not change. I, the Lord, am God, and I change not. Malachi 3.6, James 1.17. I know because of time I won't read all these, but you can write these down. Immutability. God is unchangeable. Malachi 3.6 and James 1.17. Our response you can have complete trust in God because His promises will be kept and His nature will not change. That's good news. The promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus Christ and they will be kept. God has a perfect track record. Amen? He does. And His nature will not change. He's not a schizophrenic God. He is always, always the same. Un. Changeable. It's called the immutability of God. We can have complete trust in God because His promises will be kept and His nature will never change. Jesus said, I'm the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hebrews 6, 17 through 18. Dealing with our response to the unchangeableness of our God. Hebrews 6, 17 through 18. And Hebrews 13, 18 is the verse I just quoted. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now again, these are attributes that belong to God alone. They're incommunicable. There's no way we could ever fully grasp these doctrines. How about eternality? The eternality of God. What's, what does that mean? It means that God is timeless. You know, we get a grip a little bit of taste of that when uh, in Peter's epistle he reminds the reader that, hey, yeah, uh, the Noahic flood took place and you guys made fun of it and said, that old fool building a boat for 120 years. But the flood came. And then there's a reminder in that context that a year as a, as a, is as of a thousand years and a thousand years as a day. Uh, a day as a thousand and a thousand as a day. We get to look into the eternality of God. God is timeless. Psalm 90 verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So Psalm 90 verse 2 and then Jude 25. For those of you who know the Bible, Jude has but one chapter. So that's Jude 25. That means verse 25. What should be our response to the eternality of God? The fact that God is timeless. We are sure that God has no time limits and that his purposes cannot be frustrated by time or space. I mean, 
Do we get frustrated with time? Oh, my goodness. I mean, some of you were frustrated even tonight trying to get back here by 530. And then we have other places to go after church or tomorrow and the work week starts. And time always frustrates us, but that's not true. And Psalm 121 to remind us that our God never slumbers nor never sleeps. He's always uh, outside of time, but always dealing uh, with humanity and our time. So that's our response. We are assured that God has no time limits and that his purposes cannot be frustrated by time and space. Isaiah 46.10 is a really good reference for our response to the eternality of God. All right? Immateriality, immaterialness of God, and that has to do with the fact that God is spirit. There it is. God is spirit. John 4, 24. If I get there, I'm going to read it, okay? John 4. Let's see. 24. The Bible says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The immateriality of God. Colossians 1.15. give you one from Pauline writings. Colossians 1.15. The Bible says, this is the word of the Lord. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Who's this him, by the way? That's the Lord Jesus Christ, right? The Son of God. So the immateriality of God, God is spirit. What should be our response? Well, the basis of our faith in life is the unseen spiritual world, which is more real than our physical material world. Isn't that awesome? But that's the truth. I mean, we like things that are tangible. But in reality, the spiritual world is more real than anything you can reach out and touch. So the invisibility or the, the invisible nature and our God is spirit. Now, what do we know about the God who dwells in unapproachable light? The Son of God manifested him to us in physical humanity, right? <clears throat> Becoming fully God as being fully God already, but adding humanity. That kenosis passage, right? He did not consider it robbery to be equal with the Father, but made himself of no reputation coming in the form of the servant, coming in the form of a servant. That's called the humiliation of Christ. So we, we, we like to talk about the humiliation of Christ, and, and, and we think about the cross, but I'm telling you, the humiliation started when he left heaven, right? For him to condescend to this earth and put on human flesh, bang, humility, humility. In other words, to take on our flesh was humiliation for the Son of God. And it wasn't the subtraction of His deity, it was the addition of humanity. That's the humiliation, putting on humanity. So, the Son of God has revealed to us the Father. Right? As the Scripture says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So I make that understanding for you because I believe that the Son of God is still in resurrected bodily form and is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. So I believe that when we see Christ, we'll see him in his body, howbeit glorified. He's the first fruit from the grave, and so you will be resurrected from the grave and given a body like unto the Lord. Uh, no more suffering, no more pain, no more death, no more sickness. That's coming in the future. So the immateriality of our God. Next, we have the om, uh, omnipotence. And you know some of these omnis, right? Omnipotence would be that God is all-powerful. If you're sovereign over all things, then you're all-powerful. Kind of connected, right? Omnipotence, God is all-powerful. Uh, Job 42.2. This one's worthy of us reading, I think. Chapter 42. Omnipotence 42, verse 2. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Man, what a good verse. 
Right? That is, this is Job's conclusion uh, when he deals uh, with the Lord. So, omnipotence. What should be our response? There are multiple verses. Psalm 115, verse 3. Matthew 19, verse 26. What should be our response? We should be humbled and comforted as we trust and serve our God. We can accomplish whatever He pleases and who is not hindered by human limitations. Uh, uh, God can do exceedingly, abundantly, above anything that we could ever ask or think. Because of the power that worketh in us. Unto Him be glory in the church through Christ Jesus throughout all ages. Just a reminder of the omnipotence of God. Our response here a few verses. Psalm 115 verses 1 through 3. Psalm 115, 1 through 3. And you know Philippians 4.13, right? What's that verse? Yeah. You, know, you got to know that one in context. Okay, It's just not running out and playing a football game and doing all that. It's got more to do than that. But it's still a wonderful verse of Scripture. Okay. Uh, omnipresence simply means that God is everywhere. We don't share this attribute with our God. Right? Some of us wish we could be everywhere at one time. Wish I could zip right over there and see the grandkids right quick. Zip right back. You know, just be everywhere at one time. But that's our God. Uh, omnipresence. God is everywhere. 1 Kings eight twenty seven. Jeremiah 23, 23. And 24. Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 23 and 24. And then Acts 17 which I love that text. I won't take time to read it. 27 through 28 speaks of the omnipresence of the Lord. Remember David praying that prayer? I can't go anywhere where you are not there. And David confesses this. What should be our response? Well, it is comforting knowing God is always with us. If you belong to Him, He is everywhere at one time. And then we have omniscience. Which is the fact that God is all-knowing. Let me give you a few references. Psalm 139 verse 2. Proverbs 15.3. In the New Testament we have Matthew 6.8. And then we have Romans 11.33. Okay. Incommunicable attributes. Those attributes are true of God alone. Okay, let me hit a few of the communicable attributes for you. They're shared by us. Not fully. Not perfectly. But to a limited degree. We share these with our God. Holiness. God is unique and absolutely morally pure. Uh, Isaiah 6. Enough said, correct? Holy, holy, holy. The Hebrew of superlative. There's not enough just to say it's holy. It's not enough to say holy, holy. You have to say holy, holy, holy. It has to be trebled. Because that's, in my opinion, uh, the number one attribute of our God. It, it all, in my opinion, comes from that particular understanding of who God is. He is absolutely holy. He is morally pure. Leviticus 11.44 Leviticus 11.44, Isaiah 6, 3 through 7, and Habakkuk 1.13. Y'all know what that says? His eyes are even so pure that he cannot even look upon sin. What a verse of scripture. So what should our response be? We should be holy because God is holy, right? Have you read 1 Peter? Was it 1.13? As the Father is holy, you also are to be holy. Now, there's a part of the holiness of God that we don't have. <clears throat> that distinctiveness of holy other. In other words, there's, there's at least two parts of thinking of the holiness of God. He is set apart. Uh, for instance, when Jesus gave the model prayer, how did He give it? Our Father, who is in heaven, that means you are set apart distinctly as holy. Which we ought to start all of our praying that way. To acknowledge 
who our God is. So in that sense, you're not holy like that. However, if you've been saved by grace through faith and you belong to the Lord, you are pronounced holy and innocent before God in that sense of holiness and righteousness. And also, there's a perfected aspect of holiness this side of heaven. So you remember the justification deals with the penalty. Uh, sanctification deals with the power of sin in your life. And glorification will deal with the very presence of sin one day. It'll be gone, right? So there's this in-between time where how is God perfecting you? There's a sense where to be made holy is a continuous action. So I want to say that I'm more like Jesus today than I was yesterday, right? That 10 years from now, we should be making progress in the issue of holiness. So I would ask you a question tonight. I, I've preached a series before on the holiness of God that comes forth in holy living how are you doing with the holiness thing? How are we individually dealing with the holy thing? In other words, He is holy and distinct and set apart, yet we've been saved by grace through faith and are called to walk in holiness because He lives in us. And so that's a responsibility. So do you understand how that we share this with our God? He is holy, absolutely pure, but you've been saved and made holy you are the temple of the Holy Spirit, right? And he, he, he indwells you. And then there's that process of becoming more like the Lord this side of heaven. For most of us, uh, when Jesus returns, it'll be more than a rapture. It's going to be a rupture. Because we are so unlike Him. But I'm telling you, in life, we should, becoming, we should be becoming more like the Lord. That takes honesty and transparency. It takes you saying you haven't arrived. I've been around you people. I know. You're not, neither am I. None of us are. We, we have many, 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 many. <laughs> uh, we need to be hit uh, by the, on the anvil of the will of God. We need to be, the dross needs to be burned away. We need to be falling under the consuming fire. We need to, to be the potter, uh, submitting to the potter as we're uh, clay on the wheel, right? By the way, if, if, if there's ever anything that speaks to the sovereignty of God over your life, it's the potter. He is, and you're the clay. You have absolutely no say-so. Have you ever seen clay say to the potter, why did you form me this way? Think about Jeremiah 18. Aren't you thankful that he didn't throw it away in Jeremiah 18, but he made it over as seemed good for the potter to make it. And it's the Hebrew of superlative, meaning he makes it over and over and over and over and over again, as seems good to him to make it. That's good news for us. So the holiness of God. I could talk on that one for a while and I'll stop. Our response, we should be holy because God is holy. 1 Peter 1, 1, 14 through 16. I said verse 13, I was wrong. 1 Peter 1, 1, uh, excuse me. 1 Peter 1, 14 through 16. Okay, in your list, then the justice of God, God is lawful and impartial. Psalm 19.9. The Bible says, The fear of the Lord is clean, Enduring forever, the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Psalm 89 verse 14 would be the same. Zephaniah 3, 5. And what should our response be to the justice of God? Well, we are comforted and challenged in knowing we will be judged fairly and impartially by God and we are encouraged to treat others fairly and impartially. So here is an attribute. God is absolutely uh, complete justice. Correct? With no error whatsoever. Not impartiality. No biasness. No period. And he is the righteous judge. However, in light of that, how do we treat other people? Well, this comes to roost, doesn't it? This is a, a communicable attribute that we share with our God because we are made in His image. Alright, how about truth? God is faithful 
and reliable. John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Aletheia is the word truth. It's used in the Gospel of John multiple times. It's actually very, very important. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. So God is faithful and reliable. Numbers 23.19 is a good Old Testament reference. Numbers 23.19 and Titus 1.2. So what should be our response to the fact that our God is truth? Well, since God is true, His Word is inerrant and trustworthy. And therefore, we have strong encouragement in awaiting the certain fulfillment of all of God's promises. Since God is true, we as His people should live lives of truthfulness. See where this is headed? These are communicable attributes. They belong to our God, and they also belong to us. Howbeit limited, we are able to know a sense of what truth is. And we are able to know how to treat others truthfully. In things that we say, in the way that we behave. Hebrews 6, verse 18. All right, I'm going to stop there. Okay? That got us down through truth. Um, Next time we meet... We'll deal with mercy, grace, and love, and then I'll deal with the names or titles of God uh, briefly, and I, I can probably do that and uh, keep us going on maybe angels, uh, or Satan, angels, and demons. By the way, is Satan omnipresent? We sometimes act like that, don't we? We give him way too much credit, Right? As one theologian once said, the enemy is brilliantly stupid, right? But the issue is, is he's not omnipresent, he's not omnipotent, uh, he's not all-knowing. Only God is. And I know he has his minions and his demons, and we'll certainly talk about that in the coming weeks. Any questions tonight? I don't see any smoke coming out of anybody's ears. Aren't you glad that God is God and there's no one like him? That's awesome to think about the God that we belong to. And I hope the principles of the attributes of God will help you think more correctly about the God that we belong to. And then think about the communicable attributes and how these things should be in us. Because we're made in the image of God. And, and obviously these things can be in lost people. Right? But boy, howdy. Should they not be only in us, but active in us. Right? Because we belong to the Lord. And obviously if you're lost, you're not going to have the right understanding of any of those communicable attributes. But if you're in the image of God, it's possible uh, for lost people to share love. uh, I.e. marriage. But it's not known the same way that it's known between those who are believers. Correct? All right. Uh, Any questions? Yes, sir. Uh Uh-huh. Now, you said that. I said God was sovereign, and you're saying what now? Okay, you're asking about the sovereignty of God in salvation. We didn't broach that subject, and we will broach that subject when we talk about the doctrine of salvation. We'll spend probably three on it. But just a short answer to that is there is a universal love for God's creation, all mankind. But there is an effectual love for individuals in salvation that is different than just the general aspect of God loving the world. It's absolutely clear from the Bible that electing love in salvation is a different kind of love than a general love for all of God's creation. That is absolutely clear from the Bible. So you have to deal with that when you're reading texts of Scripture. Is this a general... It's just like the general call for salvation. Let me explain that in two ways. The general call would be tonight to say, if you are burdened and heavy laden, come to me and I will give you rest. Well, that's an awesome open invitation for all people to come. Is it not? However, when you get over to Acts and Lydia is saved. So, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden is a general call 
to come to Christ for all people. There's only two qualifications. Burdened down, heavy laden, come to Christ. General call. However, it is a specific call on Lydia's life when the Bible says God opened her heart. That's a major difference. Because people hear the general call all the time of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but they don't come. Is that not true? What is it that causes that person to be willing to come? You can't get it from humanity, folks. I've never seen a dead man make a decision. And the Bible says you're dead in trespass and sin. God must awaken the heart. And He does that through an effectual call to make you alive. So this pastor believes that regeneration of your heart precedes faith. I believe that faith is a fruit of having a regenerated heart. The Bible says God made you alive. You were dead in trespass and sin, but don't you love that coordinating conjunction, comma, but God, who was rich in mercy, makes us alive, quickens our spirit, so that we thus... See, we often think that faith is a virtue that we have. How can a dead man have a virtue? How can you possibly have a virtue within you to respond to God when the Bible says you are dead in trespasses and sins? So God has to quicken your spirit. He has to make you alive. It's called regeneration. Remember Nicodemus? How can a man be born again? How, how can a man have eternal life? Jesus said you must be born again. It's the word anothen. What does that mean? You've got to be born from above. Where does salvation start? It starts from above, folks. God does the work. Now, I know that can be confusing, but here's what I believe. God can save anybody, anywhere, anytime. But you're never going to get this pastor to tell you that God doesn't know who's going to be saved. If he's all-knowing, if he knows all things, the beginning to end, he's the Alpha and Omega. I'm telling you, there's never going to be a chair turned up at the marriage supper of the Lamb of somebody who was supposed to make it there who didn't. It's not going to happen. God is absolutely 100% sovereign. Okay, you ask. <laughs> so I told you. But that should never, ever, ever, ever affect our evangelistic efforts. If you don't share your faith, that's on you. You don't know who God's going to save. And the reason you share Jesus with others is because you've got a command from the Bible to take. It doesn't say bring everybody to Jesus. If we start bringing everybody to Jesus, then we'll start giving a dumbed-down gospel. The Bible tells us to take Jesus to everybody. We take the gospel to every single soul because we want people to be saved by grace through faith. And obviously, you know, God's in control of that. And we have a responsibility before the Lord to give the gospel. Now go ahead. Uh, you mentioned God's opening up Lydia's heart. Will everyone's heart at some point or another be opened by God or not necessarily? No. I mean, we can't say that. If we did, then we would be universalist. And universalism is that all people go to heaven. And that's not true biblically. They must believe in the person and work of Jesus Christ in order to be saved. So... Uh, there's an opening of the heart, case in point, John 6. Of all the ones the Father hath given me will come to me. And, he says, no one can come to the Father unless the Spirit draws him. So there has to be a drawing, and there has to be a, uh, a work of the Holy Spirit in the heart of the person before they actually come to the Lord. Does that make sense? So... Uh, you know, we're looking into, we're, we're delving into deep things. Again, Romans 11, how unsearchable are his ways. All I can tell you is that God is 100% sovereign. Only God can save. God must open the heart. God must be the one that saves the sinner because you're saved by grace through faith. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy that he saves us. So, again, some questions are hard to deal with. Uh, but, I, but I can't, as a student of the Word, tell you something that's not true, according to the Bible. And here's what we know. that We know this. 
God saves his whosoever's. <laughs> That's the best way for us to say it. The grace of God seeks and saves. Faith must respond to grace. Right? And faith and grace will always change the life. Right? There will always be a transformation. We, we, can't all, we, can't, we don't have minds sharp enough. We don't know. We're limited. But with biblical understanding of texts like Romans 9, 10, and 11, you can't make them mean something they don't mean. You have to be honest with the Word of God. All right? Any other questions? We're human, right? From our perspective, uh, we want to control all things, even our salvation. But that's one thing you can't control. God saves sinners. Now, you must respond in faith. Right? For by grace are we saved through faith. And that not of ourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So let's maintain both of those. Let's don't get out in the weeds and, and, and have the wrong mentality. Let's keep the balance to take the gospel to the ends of the earth and let God do the saving. All right. Any other questions? I appreciate the questions, and I'm really glad they stopped. No. <laughs> no, there's nothing wrong with dealing with tough questions, and we should. Just let the Word of God be your guide and not your opinion. That's my challenge to you. Let the Word of God be your guide and not opinions. Follow the Scripture, follow the text, and let the Word of God speak to you. Okay? All right. Y'all ready to go home? Okay. Did y'all have fun tonight? All right. Well, we want God to stretch us. We do. Okay? Uh, in finishing about the sovereignty of God, I love what Warren Wearsby once said. Uh, Warren Wearsby once said, When it comes to election and predestination and the foreknowledge of God, which are all in the Bible, right? It's a family secret. I love that terminology. You only understand those things if you're part of the family. And it's not something we ought to be running up to somebody and say, Hey, girl, uh, you're not elect, so I'm not going to tell you the gospel. Right? We could be so naive and just wrong, spirited, and, and off base. Do you think you know who God's going to save and who he's not? Well, if you, I mean, you're pretty sharp, right? We take the gospel to the ends of the earth. We obey the Lord. But election, predestination... Those are things, as a church family, we think about. You know why? You just need to magnify the grace of God that you are saved. You need to thank God Almighty every single day that God visited your heart with the gospel. I mean, that's what that terminology is reminding us of. God, that you would elect us and love us and choose us. Man, it's not, it's not to be bigoted. It's not to be arrogant. It's to bring humility. It's really to put you... On your face before God and thank Him. Do you remember what Ruth said to Boaz? Why have I found grace in your sight that you may take notice of me, seeing that I'm a stranger? Oh, boy, does that not speak of grace? Why, why, Lord, would I find grace in your sight, knowing full well that I was estranged from you, that you would love me and visit my heart with the gospel? Folks, we ought not ever get over that, right? All right, let's pray. God, you're good to us. And Lord, some questions are difficult. And Lord, we know that. Uh, but Father, we know also that you are sovereign. You know the beginning from the end, and you control all things. Job said it. Your purposes will not be thwarted. Lord, that's clear that they will not be. And Father, I pray that we would submit to you. You are an awesome God. Lord, there's a reason why we should fear you in reverential awe. But also, Lord, sometimes there's some trembling in the boots because you are God and you are holy. You're the same God that shook the mountain at Mount Sinai by just speaking a word. You're a powerful God that David would say the storms racing across the desert, and in through Palestine have no comparison to the strength and might of our God. Lord, remind us of that 
And may we have a correct understanding of who you are. And may it, live, may it be lived out in our lives. A good belief, biblically, ushers forth into good, practical living that honors you. And Lord, would you do this for your son's sake. Amen.